Look, my name is Ryan Castle. I'm part of the Elevate Learning Team. I'm the uh, Managing Director of the Breakthrough Company, and we're very closely partnered with the uh, wonderful team at Master Builders, helping bring learning development. And in an environment like this, COVID-19, where the world is certainly a different place to what it was just a few short weeks ago, uh, really excited to be able to bring you the likes of these uh, supporting your business webinar. And today I am joined by the wonderful team from Hazelton's Law. We have got Rachel Connor and Mark Holland here to give us uh, uh, their expertise and share some advice. Mark and Rachel, welcome along to the webinar. Hi guys. Alrighty, who's leading off? Me. Nice, Hi Rachel. guys, I'm, I'm Rachel. I work with uh, Mark and the team at Hazelton Law. Some of you might have spoken to one or other of us on our, our Master Build hotline, the number you call with um, queries about uh, construction contracts. So we're here today to talk about uh, some of the implications of COVID-19, the lockdown, uh, what it means in terms of your business uh, now that uh, all non-essential building works had to, had to stop. Uh, there'll be flow and effects in terms of delays and costs and things like that. So we'll talk through some of those. Mark's the, um, the contract guru in the office, so he knows uh, the standard form contracts in particular, like the back of his hand. Uh, so he'll he'll talk you through some of the issues there and just some of the considerations you need to think about um, moving forward through the lockdown and then coming out the other side. Uh, then I'll step in and we'll talk, if we've got time, about some of the things you can be doing now in terms of getting your own house in order, improving the way you do things at the other side. And that's things like bringing your paperwork up to scratch, ensuring that the way you operate is in line with the um, Building Act and, and building regulations. And some of the things you can do to start bringing uh, disputes to the fore. If there are issues that have been lurking in the background, you've maybe put them on the back burner uh, in the too hard basket, something like that, you can start thinking about uh, whether you want to take steps to resolve those sorts of things now. So I'll hand over to Mark to uh, to talk about some of the the COVID-related issues. The way we usually run these things is is if you've got questions throughout the throughout the webinar, just chuck them up and we'll, we'll um, answer them as we see them. It's it's often a good idea. Uh, when they come up, you know, in the context of a particular issue, it's good to address them uh, at that time rather than leaving them to the end. So we're fairly relaxed about answer, answering as we go along. Hey, thanks, Rachel. But uh, let's hand over to Mark. Uh, hi, all. Uh, good morning. Those of you who've uh, either talked to me on the phone or seen me talk before, you'll see me in a more constrained manner than usual. Um, I'll be a little less jazz freestyle today. What I would like to jump straight into on this is the, is the underlying important fact that everyone's contracts are still running. Nothing about the lockdown uh, has put contracts into hibernation. So everything we're going to talk about today is precedent on the fact that you still got to comply with your contracts. Your rights are still in your contract. As I'm wont to say to at seminars or on the, and on the phone, rights and obligations don't come out of the ether they will come out of the four corners of the contract. So bearing that in mind, what are we in this situation? We've got all non-essential building work has been stopped. Everyone's here because they all fall into that category. The standard clauses in the master builder contract provide for most of the effects that will flow from this. So for example, delay is covered. This will either be complying with legislation or something outside the RMB's reasonable control. So immediately there's an extension of time for the master builder um, arising from the lockdown. But again from this is be communicating it. One of the big issues we see with regard to extensions of time 
is that members don't actually do anything uh, about communicating the situation to the other party when the matter arises. Similarly, with regard to um, maybe not being able to get materials and issues with the supply chain um, after the event, we've got the uh, change of materials clauses in the contract, which entitles you to an adjustment. And again, if there's a delay in getting materials, that's an extension of time for matters outside the reasonable control. Cost increase, which comes from uh, disruption to the supply chain, Maybe there's going to be big demand on a, on a very small amount of materials and we all open up afterwards. Everybody's going to be looking for the same thing. That's covered by the price increase clause in your contract. With regard to financial pressures and cash flow, we've had particular questions with regard to stage payments. What can I do if I'm halfway through a stage? Can I look for an advance payment because this is outside my control now? Uh, our advice on this is that nothing in the contract or in this current situation leads to the payment provisions uh, of the contract being amended. If you're in a stage payment contract and you haven't reached substantial completion, you're not entitled to essentially demand the payment. Now, none of this precludes reaching an agreement with an owner, but it does mean that uh, it, it does mean that the stage payment provisions aren't amended uh, because of the lockdown. Similarly, and I have some uh, questions under the NZIA contract, which I'm going to address uh, afterwards, but those as well also deal with whether you're dealing with the NZIA contract, the Master Builder subcontract, SA 2017 or whatever it is, your rights are in there. You should be looking for extensions of time. You should be giving notices now. And particularly if you're a commercial subcontractor or if you're contracting with a developer, there may be time bar clauses in there. And kindness is already in short supply. Um, we, we will see principals and we will see head contractors looking to rely on time bars to not give extensions of time and to not give variations. So it's hugely important that you uh, deal with that upfront and keep those contractual mechanisms going. With regard to those of you working under the NZIA contracts so or 3910 or even SA 2017, it looks clear now that you can rely on the change of law variation to set the contractual mechanisms in, in, in train. And we, we say that because we're now seeing people being arrested, open court for breach of the lockdown. We have a, a state of emergency in place. And I think it would be very difficult for someone to resist a variation claim for change in law, which as I said, applies under the NZIA contracts, uh, the commercial subcontracts and the NZS contracts. This doesn't really affect the operation of the residential contracts. It's just something, something that isn't necessary for you to have yourself fully protected because you've got the extension of time, you've got the change in materials, you've got the variation for things which aren't allowed in the contract, which are uh, necessary, such as making the site safe, uh, making the site weather tight before you left, perhaps protecting materials, increased security. Those things will all come under that. So uh, there, there, is a, there is a separation in how those operating under RBC1 can protect themselves, which is largely self-help, as opposed to those under a contract which has someone either administering it like an architect or engineer, or they have to respond to a head contractor, but look within the four walls of your contracts. We've had uh, a few questions to the association around force majeure clauses and why isn't one in there. I, I'd like to knock this on the head, to be honest, and, and we have provided um, some advice to the association on this, but quite simply, particularly under RBC1, there is nothing a force majeure clause 
would give you that you do not already have. And in fact, it would be to your disbenefit because the force majeure clause, insofar as they are a general description, are essentially a no-fault, everyone-drop-hands situation. You would find it difficult to make a claim for increased costs. You would find it difficult to make a claim possibly for an extension of time costs. You would find it difficult to make a claim for price fluctuation if it was found to be a force majeure event because the owner could go, but it's force majeure, it's not my fault, these provisions don't apply. So it's actually of no, it would be of no assistance to the member to have a force majeure clause in the contract. Quite by accident, I happen to be acting for a certified builder uh, liquidator at the moment. And I've seen the force majeure clause and all it says is you're excused from not complying with your obligations where a force majeure event arises. So that doesn't assist you in getting something additional. It just protects you, which is already in the contract in any event. Thanks, so Mark. then, Just appreciate you uh, clarifying that uh, force majeure piece because that is something that has, that seems to be coming up not only in the construction industry, but all around. So appreciate yeah, you Yeah, I think so. I, and I, 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 as I said, I think if I can just say it um, quite simply, there's nobody going down the pub on a Friday night now but there's quite a few people are getting uh, Bush lawyer advice. Oh, if you had a force majeure clause, you'd be, you, you'd be able to claim everything. Quite simply, a force majeure clause would not assist anyone under the master builder contracts in any way that they're not already assisted. And in fact, you are in a better position with the contracts so long as you use them. Just quickly before I, I hand back to Rach, um, I do want to stress that, look, whether it's commercial contracts which we're dealing quite a bit with, commercial subcontracts, pre-contract matters during the contract. Look, most people are going to reach sensible commercial resolutions. Everybody wants to come out the far side of this in one piece, get going again as quickly as possible. What we can stress enough is to record any agreements. You don't want to have done someone a favor during this time and a come back and bite you later. Recording an agreement doesn't mean everybody signs an initial every pages. Simple, clear exchange of emails is more than enough to record an agreement. For example, if you reached an agreement with an owner that a particular stage was 50% complete and they were going to pay you half the payment for the stage, a simple exchange of emails according that is more than sufficient to record that agreement and for it to be enforceable and it to be useful down the line. Um, Can I jump in with a uh, question yeah. there? Um, so if, let's say, some of these agreements take place over the phone, what would the, would the best thing to be after the phone call? Simply record your recollection of the conversation and the agreements in an email and send that to the other party to go, hey, this is what I took from our conversation. Can you please confirm that you, you agree also? Would that be the way to handle it? 100%. The best way to record an agreement is to write to the other side, an email is fine, um, and say to the other person, this is what we discussed, this is what came out of it. And they later come back and say yes, or they say, actually, no, um, I think that third bullet point there is a little bit off, this is what I take from it. And you refine it and it's done. But certainly uh, if things happen over the phone, you know, follow it up with an email, but clear recording of any agreement and something for people working under very formal contracts in the commercial sector, I cannot stress this enough. Take no informal assurances of waivers of time bars or notices. The project manager you're dealing with for Fletcher or whoever it is, has no authority to release you from time bar notices. Stand on your rights, follow the provisions of the contract. If someone at 
Fletcher's or Downer or whoever it happens to be is saying to you, oh, don't worry about those notices, ignore it, get them in. Or if someone is going to waive notice provisions, get it in writing uh, and make sure it's from someone of authority. But this is not a time to be going on uh, informal agreements, etc. As I said, there's some goodwill and kindness around now, but um, we're only halfway through four weeks, and we think you know these things will, will, will you know, will, will start to get short supply, or people will have amnesia later on if you don't properly record the, uh, any agreements or waivers. So now, look, that's that's the introduction to where we are sitting on the contracts, and uh, we do have some questions that we're going to feed into. But I know that Rach is going to. Uh, do some other uh, points now, and then uh, and, and then we'll turn to the questions. Uh, Mark, NRH, depending on who's best to um, answer this, you've just used the yeah. term time bar notice a few times. Yeah. Um, for some of us that may not be familiar with what that is, could you just give us maybe a definition and an example of, of that? Yeah, um, uh, very quickly, a time bar notice would be something that will say, uh, we'll be closing a contract that says, if a person wants an extension of time, they must give a notice within five working days of the event occurring, or they will have no entitlement to an extension of time. So it is uh, a defined period in a contract that says if you don't comply with it, you won't get uh, an extension of time, or a variation, or whatever it happens to be. They don't exist the standard residential contracts. They do exist in the, in, in the NZIA contracts, the architects contracts. They do exist in some of the more one-off subcontracts. As I said, I'm not picking on Dan or Fletcher sure, in particular. Sure, it's, just sure. that it's just that they're the ones who do have them. But some, so, some of the other uh, contractors uh, around the country amend uh, standard form subcontracts to include them. So the, the, those are a time bar. But members working under RBC1 should still be communicating in any event, but they won't have a time bar. Got it. Thanks for clarifying, Mark. Okay. And yep. Rachel, are we now handing to you to uh, take us on for the next step? Yeah, I just I just wonder if maybe we should tackle some of these questions that have come in now. We've, we've I just saw one come in about retentions and, and, and where does this leave retentions and things like that. And I, I, I think you probably touched on it a bit there, Mark, but at the end of the day, if, if a payment's due, there's no reason for that payment not to be made as a result of this lockdown. Payments are still are still happening. The payment cycles are, are going ahead and all of that. So if your retentions are due, they're payable. If they're not quite due yet, uh, then they're not. And that, that's really the, the short answer to that. Mark will be able to put that in, in, in technical speak for you, but that that's sort of where we get to with retentions. And appreciate that it's no one's fault that, that you've not been able to get to the point of retentions being due, the work's not been able to um, be completed. But you're really frozen in that in that spot in terms of the actual physical construction work. So you can claim for whatever's due now, but we'll have to wait for, for the next chunk to come in. Got anything to add on that, Mark? No. Um, so what, what, just to uh, explain where we are with questions, we have, uh, we have some questions around having materials damaged during the lockdown, and we will come to that. And also we've got some uh, questions around sunset clauses and sale and purchase agreements, and we'll come to that. Um, but uh, they will more naturally flow after Rachel's section. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. um, what I have here is a question on dealing with uh, suspended contracts in the lockdown. And uh, it's a particular question where someone who has been lucky enough to receive a clear instruction for the works to be suspended. This applies to the commercial contracts that are out there, the NZS3910 type contracts and the NZIA contracts. Both of those operate and again, this is important, 
to suspend the obligation to carry on the works. Now, the contracts themselves are not suspended. And this is my point I came back to at the start. Everything else continues on. And this particular question is from someone dealing with the NZIA contract. And I do know that, our, that the architects are very tight on time bars. They're very tight on notices. So it is important to, to then stand on your rights. With regards to costs in this particular question, which are arising due to the suspension, uh, how we've been dealing with this, uh, with, the, with, with the commercial branches, uh, they fall into two categories. One are time-related costs from the extension of time, and one are the variation costs arising directly from the suspension. And, and, and under that, and I'm going to talk about the variation costs first, demobilization, remobilization, making the site safe, making the site watertight before you left site, because care of the works continues to be the contractor's obligation. So those are sort of categories of costs we would see as claimable for a variation arising from, from, from a suspension, and the NZIA contract does provide that the suspension is a variation. Now, the time-related costs then are separate. There's going to be increased contract works insurance, uh, additional contract bond costs. There'll be some on-site overheads like that, which are uh, unavoidable. There'll be some off-site overheads as well. There'll be um, head office costs of managing the shutdown, mitigating the loss, so those are, it's the categories of things that flow directly from the suspension. With regard to the question of how you identify and quantify them, quantifying under the NZIA contract is on a manner to satisfy the architect. It is actual and reasonable costs. It is, we couldn't get the Porticom off-site. Porticom are charging us 25% of the high ridge during the lockdown. Uh, this is an unavoidable cost and we'd look to pass it on. It was, it's a quantifying the actual cost to you. Um, the big question we're getting in commercial contracts are, can we obtain the cost of staff standing time? And quite simply, and I think this applies to, uh, to all contracts, whether it's uh, a commercial subcontract, a residential contract, or a contract under the NZIA contract, uh, or NZS3910, we simply cannot see a way to shoehorn, to use the technical term, idle staff as something the principal or the owner should be paying under the contract. They are not the cause of, um, of labor staff not being able to be reallocated to other works. So I think that would not be a cost which would be claimable uh, under any contract for, for, for a suspension or indeed uh, more generally from the law. I'm sorry, and just quickly on the retentions. If the retention wasn't due and payable on day one of the lockdown, it's not going to be due and payable on day 28 of the lockdown. However, if you had a claim, a payment claim in, you know, all other mechanisms of the contract carry on, uh, that you have to be paid carries on, that a person has to issue a payment schedule, all the other mechanisms carry on. The only thing which stops in these contracts is the contractor's obligation to carry on with the works. Brilliant, thanks Matt. Okay, okay. right, show you. Oh yes, um, so now for my bit, I'm here to talk about uh, the sorts of things you can do while you're stuck in your living room um, to basically get your own house in order, maybe improve your, your internal systems, your, your admin, uh, things like that. 
The things I, I'm going to focus on are um, the requirements of the Construction Contracts Act around payment claims and payment schedules and how you can improve your, your claim processes there. And then I'll take a look at the disclosure requirements, pre-contract disclosure requirements in the Building Act, and just quickly finish off with, um, with a chat about uh, dispute resolution and the sorts of things you can be looking at doing now to make a start on those sorts of claims. Um, so, many of you have probably heard of the Construction Contracts Act. I know that, that some of you do have CCA compliant documentation, and by that I mean you're issuing payment claims and payment schedules that comply with the requirements of the Act, but certainly not everyone out there is. Um, and it's really a good time now, while you've got a bit of extra time to be dealing with the admin to, to work those sorts of things out. So back in 2002, the, the Construction Contracts Act, the CCA, was set up as a means of facilitating cash flow for the construction industry. And it's seen as sort of a quick and, and easy way of, of um, ensuring payment for, for work done. Really the key requirements of the Act from that payment perspective come down to uh, Section 20 onwards of the Act, and it's this requirement to um, to serve valid payment claims and a valid payment claim is different to an invoice in a few key ways but nothing that's that's terribly difficult to manage once you've got your paperwork in order. The way the Construction Contract Act works is that if you serve a valid payment claim on an owner or a head contractor or someone you're looking to to pay you then the payer needs to either pay you what you've claimed or respond with a valid payment schedule. So basically, once you've, once you've got your payment claim documentation in order and you serve that on, the, on your payer, they need to respond either by paying you or by serving you with a valid payment schedule, which tells you why they're not going to pay you and how much they are going to pay you instead. So it really, it really, the CCA is really good for setting up that line of communication, promoting communication between, between contracting parties, and basically is designed to ensure that uh, everyone knows where they, where they stand, what they're doing, who's going to pay what, and when and why. Flowing out of that, if, if people don't do their bit properly, if, if you don't get a valid payment schedule, then you can take steps to, uh, to enforce payment or require payment. And those are more forceful than, than would be the case if you'd just issued a, a, an invoice rather than a payment claim. So I keep talking about a payment claim and, and what that means, but what does a payment claim look like? Uh, basically, at its core, it's an invoice. Uh, the CCA requires under Section 20 that you, to be a valid payment claim, it's, it needs to be in writing. Uh, it needs to include a claimed amount. It needs to identify the construction contract you're working under. So it needs to be clear to everyone what you're talking about. Uh, we get situations where contractors are sort of signed up to six or seven different jobs for one particular principal or developer. So you need to be able to identify where you're working and, and, and generally what you're doing. Uh, it needs to identify the, contract, uh, the construction work that you're carrying out and the time period it relates to. So every, every construction contract will have a, a, a claim period, which should do. That can either be specified within the contract. You've got to issue your invoices or your claims monthly or weekly or fortnightly. And if not, it's, uh, there's a default monthly period in the Construction Contracts Act. 
So if your if your contract itself doesn't specify how often you're going to send out invoices or payment claims, uh, then the default within the Act is, is, is once a month. So you need to um, identify all of those things in sufficient detail that there's no question what you're claiming for. And then you need to set out what you're claiming in terms of the amount and uh, the due date for payment. So that will align with the terms in your contract if you have them. I know RBC1 has a, has a provision for agreeing the amount of time a, a party has to pay. Uh, the default again in the Act is 20 working days. So if there's been no agreement, then the payer's got 20 working days to respond or to pay you. You need to um, explain how you've calculated the, uh, the amount that you're claiming. So that, that comes back to, look, how much of this is, is materials? What materials are they? How much of it's labour? What sort of hours are we talking about? Uh, as much detail as you can in that claim. It's common for supporting documentation in terms of, you know, if you've got timesheets that you can attach, uh, that's great. Then the, the key things, and these are the things that people often miss, is that your payment claim to be valid needs to state that it's been made under the Construction Contracts Act, and you need to attach something called Form 1. And Form 1 is basically an information sheet to the payer that tells them what, what they need to do to either respond to your claim or to, to pay it. And it also sets out those consequences for failing to pay uh, the claimed amount. Rachel, can I just jump in here? So uh, Rachel has supplied um, Form 1 to me with a couple of other uh, resources. So after the webinar, we'll get an email out to everyone that attended with Form 1 and those resources attached as well so people can access that. It's also available on um, on the government website, on the MB website, I think it is. I think that's where I, where I got that one from. Okay. Um, it's a standard form document, uh, downloadable from, from the website. And if you're, if you're sending out invoices in, in zero or, or whatever it is, it's easy to attach form one to your invoice or, at, you know, to your email to go out with your invoice. And as a bundle, if all of those things are done, um, then you, you should have a, a compliant payment claim. So if you, if you do all those things, you send out a compliant payment claim, as I've said, uh, your payer then needs to decide what they're gonna do in terms of either paying you what you've asked for or disputing part of the claim if, the, if they don't agree uh, with the amount of your claim or they think you've claimed too much. So that's where the payment schedule process comes in. They'll have the specified amount of time either under your contract or, or under the act to actually pay you. And if they're not going to pay you what you have claimed, then they need to respond telling you why. And that's in the form of a payment schedule. So to be a valid payment schedule, the, the, the list of things to do are, is a bit less. Basically, you have to respond in writing and you have to, if you're going to pay less than the amount, the amount that has been claimed, you need to explain why, uh, give reasons, Tell the contractor or the, the payee what you are going to pay them. So you need to specify an amount. If that's, if that's zero, if you think the payee has sat on its hands for the last month and not done anything, so we're not, not paying you a cent, then you need to say that and say why. Basically, the person making the claim needs to be able to understand where there is a difference and why there is a difference so that it can assess whether it's going to accept that position or, or carry on with, with the claim. 
So once the, once the payer has, uh, has specified that, they then need to pay the amount that they, they say they're going to. And quite often payers will run into problems. They'll send out a schedule and they'll say, look, we're going to pay you 50K towards your claim of 100K, but then they don't pay that 50K. So that's, that's an issue in itself. You need to not only uh, issue, the, issue the schedule, but actually pay what you say you're going to. So the, uh, the real benefit of the CCA is that, as I said at the start, it sets up the system for recovering payment in the event that one party, the payer, doesn't do what they say they're going to. Basically, you can bring a claim by way of an adjudication, or if it's, if it's a straightforward, uh, I've served you with a valid payment claim, you didn't respond at all and you haven't paid me a cent, then you can go to uh, the district court with a summary judgment or if it's a company and your claims for over a thousand dollars you can bring a statutory demand and basically those are sort of quick fire ways and when I say quick fire the the wheels of justice tend to tend to turn a bit a bit slowly but they are quicker fire ways of of recovering any amount that's due to you if a payer doesn't do what they're supposed to in terms of response or payment uh, then then the CCA default mechanism becomes a debt due to you. And all you need to do is toddle off and uh, get a decision in your favor or an adjudication in your favor to be able to recover the amount that you've asked for. Uh, it, it won't be a defense at that point if the, payment, if the payment schedule process hasn't been followed or the timing for the payment schedule process hasn't been followed. It's not a defense for the payer to suddenly say, oh, look, I don't agree with what you've asked for. If they've missed the dates or missed the requirements for payment schedules, then the amount's due and that's it. The legal obligation's on the payer to pay, and then it's up to them, if they really dispute what you've, what you've claimed for, to bring their own proceedings to try to recover back from you the amount they've paid. Those are the real benefits of um, the CCA. It's, I mean, if you're sending out invoices, it's a couple of extra things you need to do to make them um, CCA compliant payment claims. So, I mean, the, there's, there's no administrative, no practical reason not to be doing it. And, and given the benefits in terms of how, how the CCA helps you recover payments that are overdue or outstanding, uh, then it, it's certainly worth doing. And if you've got a few extra minutes now, or half a day now to just tidy up your documentation and make sure it's compliant, then, then um, the benefits should flow from there. Um, sorry, Rach and Ryan, can I just jump in? Um, I've been dealing with some questions um, and I'm cognizant of time. So I, I've been dealing with some questions that have been coming in on the Q&A and, and sending out the replies. And I, I can just run through these quickly if that's okay. Yeah, yeah perfect. Uh, some of them are quite useful for everyone. So firstly, does the defix liability period on a contract extend due to the lockdown? Um, our answer to that is it, it, it's unlikely um, as there's no mechanism to extend the defix liability period. But the point on this is it doesn't really matter because the obligation is to attend to defects which are notified uh, during the period. So for example, if the lockdown happens to be month 12 of a 12 month defix liability period, and you get a notice during the lockdown, um, you have been provided notice of the defect in time. So um, for, for, from that point of view, the actual, um, it doesn't make that much uh, of a difference. Just quickly, just coming back to time bars, if you've got a notice in a formal contract to suspend, do you have to give a time bar notification, i.e. a notice? Look, and I, I can't stress this enough, if you've got a notice to suspend, that's only the start of a set of dominoes. That, 
gives you a right to claim things. So put in your notices on foot of the notice of suspension. Don't assume everything will be okay afterwards. Then moving on, what about fixed site costs while we're in lockdown, shipping containers, site office, portable toilets, etc. These are matters which under the residential contracts claimable as uh, these are the, uh, the, the additional costs from an extension of time. But again, follow the mechanisms in the master builder contract if you're using it. Firstly, tell the owner about the extension of time, then tell them about the costs as they arise. This is a question flowing out from Rachel's discussion there on two questions on Rachel's discussion on payment claims. How do you explain how a payment claim is calculated if it's, uh, if it's a stage payment contract? Quite simply, stage payments are easy. Um, foundation is done, therefore the amount for the foundation is claimable. There's no need for a calculation. But the caveat to that is if you're also claiming for other matters, such as perhaps a variation, uh, the final cost of a prime cost sum, these need to be fully broken down and backed up with invoices, etc. So the stage payment itself is easy, but there, are, there, 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 there may be other matters. Um, my understanding is that Form 1 is only required for residential contracts. Is that correct? No, it's not. All contracts now need Form 1 to be provided with a payment claim. Uh, we've had some, unfortunately, clients fall foul of this recently, which has uh, ruined our debt collection. But uh, this has been the situation since December 2015. And again, I answered some questions in particular on the NZIA contract with regards to our time costs uh, cover the shutdown of the COVID-19. And again, how I respond to this is that it, the architect under that NZIA contract should be issuing a suspension uh, or you should be seeking a variation some other way and an extension of time. And then that leads you into time-related costs and using the, um, the, the, the day rate in that particular contract. This is a particular question uh, arising out of the current situation we've got. Uh, if a homeowner has lost their job uh, due to the lockdown and they want to cancel, but you've incurred costs, can you hold on to the deposit? Look, my answer there is how they haven't progressed doesn't affect whether you're entitled to withhold the deposit or not or retain it. Now, but that's your starting point. Where you want to go from that is up to you. But the starting point is the clause says if the owner does not progress with the works. But again, you know, what you want to do with that particular right and that point in time is up to you. And finally, with, with regard to uh, client responses in accordance with form one of the CCA to payment claims, most clients wouldn't know or want to provide a, a claim response in detail. Um, is an email confirmation confirming there are no exceptions to the contractor's claim acceptable? Well, if a person has no objections, they don't have to do anything. But the purpose of Form 1 for people who don't know what to do, it's, it's a pretty straightforward piece of, piece of paper, Form 1. And it was created to remove the excuses from people to go, oh, I got a payment claim, I didn't know what to do. So um, uh, Form 1, is a, as I said, is very basic and very clearly written. So I don't think someone could rely on that to say, to say that I didn't know what to do. And just very quickly, another question here on the same thing. Do I also need to attach a copy of the CCA? No, you do not. Form one is all that's required. You don't need to provide the act um, in its totality. Sorry for jumping in. No, that's, uh, that's, that's just perfect. Perfect, Mark. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, the next bit I did want to talk about was, was thinking about setting up a new contract. And this sort of feeds into my, my chat about uh, pre-contract disclosure. You are all hopefully aware that there are requirements for residential building contracts uh, to provide certain information prior to signing the contract. 
and this is called uh, disclosure information. It's a requirement under regulations made, if, you, if you're interested, 362D of the, um, of the Building Act. So basically, builders have to provide information to owners um, regardless of the size of work. There's this $30,000 including GST sort of buffer, but we, we always recommend that look, give, the, give the disclosure information out every single time. I mean, very rarely, um, except in the case of sort of very small alterations, you would be doing work under $30,000 anyway. So treat, treat all of these requirements as applying all the time and just, you know, make, make it your standard practice. So um, there are certain, certain sorts of information that you need to uh, provide to owners in terms of uh, meeting those requirements. You need to tell the owner your, the name of your company so that they know who they're contracting with. If you're trading as an individual, then it's then it's your name or partnership name. If it's a partnership, you need to give them your business address. It's all the contact information, that upfront stuff, key contact people, uh, relevant qualifications, whether you're an LBP or not, LBP numbers, all that sort of thing. Uh, the master build the RBC One contract. There's the uh, documents pack. That comes that comes as part of the um, the suite of contracts and documentation that sets out all of the information you need. So would would really urge you to start using that if you don't already. Gives uh, the front of at the front of RBC One itself. There's the to do list, which technically isn't part of the contract itself, but is a good way of ensuring that you've ticked all those boxes and done all the things you need to do before. Uh, before you sign up to the contract. Under the Building Act, if you fail to provide the information that you need to, then technically it's an infringement offence and you can be liable for a fine of up to $2,000. And if, if you as the builder knowingly provide false or misleading information, then it can be a fine of up to $200,000. So it's worth getting that documentation right. If you haven't had a look at the documents pack or the to-do list at the start of RBC1, then take a look at it um, when you can and just ensure that you are following those processes and doing everything you need to there. Another key thing um, in terms of signing up for new contracts is to um, make sure that you know exactly who you are contracting with. Uh, we get uh, disputes all the time where builders, homeowners, subcontractors, whoever it is, can't tell us who their contract is with or don't have the accurate name of the other party. And that's really important when it comes time to sue someone or, or commence an adjudication. And the first thing you have to do is establish that you have a contract with that party. And if you say something like, I've been contracting with Mark Holland Limited, and actually you've been contracting with Mark Holland Residential Construction Limited, then that's a whole different thing. And that flows through into who you're sending invoices, payment claims, and other documents to. You need to be able to establish, firstly, you've got a contract, and secondly, you've been sending your, your paperwork to the correct party. Quite a few of our disputes, and, and more than I would have liked in the last year, we have had great difficulty in succeeding with claims, um, particularly in adjudication, but also at district court and, and, and even high court level. And arbitration. Um, yeah, arbitration. <laughs> where we just can't pin down uh, who the party on the other side is. 
and it, it just becomes a big mess because what you thought was a straightforward claim for an unpaid payment claim, for example, becomes uh, an exercise in establishing who the contract's with and you've got to unpack that and, and set up the chronology and, and here's why I thought it was this company and not this company, even though my documentation says XYZ. It can be a mess and you can cut out a whole heap of that just by ensuring that you've got the right name. That extends to um, if you are contracting with the trustees or a, a trust, you need to be getting the names of the individuals and they should all be signing the contract on, on behalf of the trust or as trustees of the trust. That very basic detail right at the start uh, can clear up a whole heap of headaches. And I think the way to, or a good way to uh, ensure that you are contracting with the right party, if it's a, if it's a company for example it's just a quick check of the company's register it's online you know you type in company's office and you type in the name of your company and if it doesn't show up then you've got the wrong name and you need to go back and clarify the exact details of, of, of who the company is it's never a bad idea if um, you know if you see three names on a on a contract um, you're dealing with individuals or you think you are th three names together in a line sort of suggests to me that, that this might be a trust so clarifying that detail at the start, uh, and then you know who you know exactly who you're dealing with down the line if it if it becomes an issue. The final thing that I just did want to talk about was um, is a good time to be thinking about how to deal with those disputes or gnarly issues that have been bugging you in the back of your mind. You know, a lot of these things sort of go on the too hard basket because you want to get on with the real work of, of of doing the building. You know, get on with building the house, whatever it is. But now that you're unable to do that, it's a good time to start thinking about those sorts of things. Are there an over, you know, um, overdue payments that you can start to call in? Uh, you know, if they were overdue before, they're still overdue now, and that that money's technically yours. You know, can you be can you be pulling these things together, getting to the bottom of some of these issues, and clearing up those disputes now while you can? We've got a note from the. Um, Building Disputes Tribunal, and I understand that other ANAs, authorised nominating authorities who hear adjudications, are still operating during this time. I'd put a caveat on that, that if you were to bring an adjudication claim at the moment, the eggs is eggs, the other party would say, well, we can't do anything, we're in lockdown. But you've at least got the ball rolling there with that sort of thing. Um, what you can be doing, if you're not quite at that stage at the moment, is preparing your documents. Uh, if you need to come and talk to a lawyer, then collate all your information, copies of the contracts, all the correspondence, put together a chronology, that sort of thing, so that you can come to us or, or whoever you instruct and, and say, look, here's the problem in a nutshell. Uh, I've pulled everything together. Here's the evidence of what, what I'm trying to say. I need payment or I want you know, this out of this party. It's not just, it's not just uh, overdue payments. There are disputes around effective work. Uh, we get a lot of a lot of head contractors complaining about the quality of workmanship of subbies or issues with product quality, that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, those kinds of disputes you can start to pull together now with a view to uh, resolving them either either as much as you can through this lockdown process or, you know, be ready to push the button on some sort of formal mechanism out the other side, whether that be adjudication or, or in court or even a dispute tribunal claim if it's, if it's less than $30,000. So those sorts of things you can start to think about and um, 
I mean, most lawyers that I've, I've been speaking to are still working remotely. They're, they're on the other end of their phone. I've got my direct dial into my mobile. So, um, you know, if it's a query around those sorts of things, you can, you can pick up the phone or, or tap out an email and, and get the ball rolling on, you know, what do we do about this? Here's, here's a problem that I've been thinking about for a while. Yeah, uh, just quickly, Ryan. Um, so look, um, we've got two points to close out on. We've got some questions. Rach is going to deal with um, care of the works just in, in a moment. Uh, just quickly, we, we, we've had questions on same-tech clauses in Senate purchase agreements. That's not something we're across, but we, we, we do know from seeing emails from the Law Society, from the Auckland District Law Society, uh, that is something that, um, that are being considered by lawyers, that there is guidance on for lawyers, and we strongly advise, cannot advise you strongly enough to, um, to talk to your convincing lawyer about what's being put in place on sunset agreements, on sale and purchase agreements. I said, we don't know what it is, but we do know that there's been quite, a, quite an amount of work done on it and that guidance has been issued uh, to lawyers on that. So, uh, Rach, uh, materials on the lockdown. Here it works. Yeah, um, so we have had a couple of questions come in about, look, I, you know, we got told about the lockdown and I had to leave materials out in the open, can't do any more work. And who's responsible for that? Who can claim? basically you know where, where does liability lie on that sort of thing care of works under under any standard form contract lies with the contractor so you have an obligation under your contract to take care of the site and to ensure that it's, it's secure it's safe and that uh, it's not it's not likely to be damaged so one question we had come through a uh, little earlier in the week was around particle board so before um before lockdown, you're at the stage of, of, of laying your particle board sheets. Suddenly you have to leave the site for four weeks and it's exposed to the elements, uh, might be getting wet, rained on, that sort of thing. Only supposed to be out for however long, 12 weeks I think it is. You know, whose fault is it if it, if it ends up being destroyed and unusable? And the answer is, well, the short answer is you. It's your fault. You've got an obligation to do the best you can to secure the site and and ensure these things are protected. Uh, and if you haven't done it, if you you know if you got the news on the Monday that on Wednesday we were closing down and you thought, oh well, I can't I, I can't do any more. I'm not going to do any more. And you leave the site at that point, then then you've got some serious issues out the other end. But if you can show that you've done everything reasonable to protect the site and keep it secure and safe and and all of that, then there, there may be a bit more of an issue there. But at the end of the day, the obligation is on you. Uh, you know, you're the one, if in a residential building, a new residential building in particular, you're the one with possession of the site. You've got control of the uh, materials and all of that sort of thing. And, and, and the obligation, certainly from a health and safety perspective and a security perspective, uh, lies, lies with you. I mean, there's only so much you can do within a 48 hour window. So there will be there will be some things undoubtedly that that look just get left as they are, and you've got to deal with the fallout from that as you go along. But I think um, during that during that period, and with the knowledge that you were going to be shut down for four weeks, you need to be taking those steps to reasonably ensure that that everything's safe and secure, and and wasn't going to be destroyed in the interim. 
I think, Mark, did you want to talk a little bit about insurance? Or? Yeah, so ju ju just quickly flowing from this, and look, the obligation for the care of the works continues. To be technical about it, if something happens to the site during the lockdown, it's no different to the, something happening to the site while you're shut down over Christmas. That, that, that's the long and the short of it, uh, as cruel as it sounds. Uh, we, we, we are encountering situations where contracts works insurance is responding to, uh, let's say, uh, some materials becoming unusable because of exposure to the weather during the lockdown. Strongly advise you to talk to your insurance broker, see if it's covered. And one further thing that flows from that is the question of who's responsible for the excess. Again, short answer, the person who takes out the insurance policy is responsible for the excess. Uh, simple reason for that is an insurance policy doesn't have to have an excess. Someone's made a conscious decision to take out an excess. So if there's a $2,000 excess for the builder arising from having to replace a whole lot of joists which have been damaged or rendered unusable during the lockdown, well then that falls at the builder to pay. That can be a situation where you might claim having to pay the excess from someone who's particularly caused you the loss, but for example, someone who's reversed a ute into framing. But uh, that isn't the situation here. This is a, um, a, a, a no-fault situation. So in that situation, the person who take, who's taken out the policy uh, generally bears the excess. Rach, anything you want to add in before we close out? No, I think that's it. Fantastic work, uh, Mark and Rachel. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your knowledge and insights. And uh, Mark, for the rapid fire answers on the Q&A in the background. Uh, that was uh, great work. I think the two things, if I could uh, summarize from a, a layperson's uh, viewpoint, communication is key. Uh, get in there, discuss these things with the people involved as early as possible. Obviously record those agreements or discussions uh, back in, in writing so everyone knows what's, what's going on and be proactive and uh, I think the other thing that really stood out for me is that actually most contracts already have clauses in them that, are, that allow you to deal with the situation that we find ourselves in around around COVID-19 and now that is that is definitely not legal advice but that was just what I took from the from the discussion and uh, so yeah communicate early get things in writing and really refer to what you already have in place around your contracts to see how it's dealt with in your contract already was uh, was kind of the key rachel if the uh, members want to get further assistance which of course may be paid assistance to help with uh, things how do we best contact you and mark and the hazelton thing yeah so we're we're still running our, our hotline we've had a, a few calls come through there all of our mobiles uh, our, our direct our lines are, are diverted to our mobiles but the, the first thing to do would be to call our main office line and you'll, you'll speak to Kaylin. And that number is 04-472-7570. If, if you're unaware of it, we run a 15-minute free advice, initial advice kind of a, a scenario. So um, your, your call will be um, taken by Kaylin and then one of us will get back to you to have a bit more of an in-depth discussion and see if we can give you some general advice. If you're looking to take something a bit further or we need more than, more than the 15 minutes, we'll get you signed up to our terms and conditions. And we've got a special rate for master builders where we charge $100 an hour for the first three hours of, of work. It's virtually pro bono. Yeah, man, hey. it's free. No, hey, um, <laughs> just about. That's an amazing yeah. rate. We find that that by and large things get dealt with within that three hours. Uh, you know, a lot of issues are sort of what do we do about this and and just putting in place a course of action. There are a couple of fairly gnarly things we've got going on at the moment, but 
yeah, I mean, the first thing to do would just be to give us a call and, and, and we'll see what we can do for you and what, what you need to do to sort your problem. Fantastic. Uh, look, thank you so much, Mark and Rachel. Really appreciate your guys' time and, and guidance in this challenging situation. Uh, we're all deeply aware that uh, this situation has put some companies and individuals and you know families in really challenging situations. Um, and the guidance you've, you've given us has been fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you for organising, Ryan, and thanks to Mark for answering all the questions. <laughs> well done, well done. You might be, uh, you might be on the coffee buying, uh, Rachel, next when we're actually yeah, allowed to so. uh, yeah. go go back to a cafe. Yeah. yeah. Hey, and uh, thanks to those of you that have um, said thanks to uh, thanks to us on the chat window. We appreciate your your feedback. Uh, we'll wrap it wrap it up there.